open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. As you know, we're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians. We've been in it now for a few months and will be for a little bit longer. We're coming to a section, chapters 8 and 9, that deal with giving. Now, don't hit the doors on me. Don't run out. Uh, it's been many years, actually, since I've preached on giving. And I guess one of the beauties and one of the things I appreciate about expositing the Scriptures, in other words, teaching through books, that's what I do, and that's what we generally do in Sunday school. I don't pick a topic, oh, I think I'll preach on this today, or I'll preach on that next week. I don't pick topics to preach on. I just preach through books, and God chooses the subject matter for which we're looking at and which I preach on. So 2 Corinthians, you know, you've heard me say, is one of Paul's most intimate epistles. He kind of pulls back his robe and shows his heart and the struggles that he's had and his love that hasn't been reciprocated by the Corinthians. But he's dealt with that in these first seven chapters. Now he changes. That's why in verse 8, verse 1, it says, moreover, some verses translated, now it's a transition in topics that he's dealing with. He's dealt with several other topics, but now he's focusing on this topic of giving. So the beauty of expositional preaching is God chooses the topics that we deal with. And I'm not preaching on giving for any other reason that it comes next after chapter 7. Chapter 8 follows chapter 7. It isn't because we need money. God doesn't need your money, and actually our church doesn't need your money. We're ahead in our offerings, and we don't even take an offering. We just have a box in the back. But most people here are pretty structured, pretty disciplined in their giving. So God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And the two are inseparably linked. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now notice, we would probably have written the verse differently. We would have said, where our heart is, our treasure is. But he says, where your treasure is. In other words, where you put your money, your heart follows it. There's like a string attached. Where you put your money, your heart automatically follows where you put your money. So the Bible is saying, invest your money, put your money in eternal things because your heart will be drawn to eternal things, the things of God. I'm just saying, no axe to grind if you're visiting with us today, I met some visitors here today, a few visitors here today. I've preached on giving in many years, but I'm only preaching on it because it comes up here. So don't think it's going to be dealt with on a regular basis. Or It's not like we're in a crisis mode because we're not. We're happy. We're in good shape. But chapter 8 is before us. One of the thrusts of Paul's third missionary journey, that's what he's on. Paul's third missionary journey was the taking up of a special relief offering for the poor saints in Judea. He's talked about this, he's written about it, and now he's collecting the money, he and others, to take the money back to Jerusalem because they were impoverished because of persecution, because of famine. Not only could the Gentile churches meet a desperate need that the Christians in Jerusalem had, but it could also strengthen the bond between the Jewish congregations and the Gentile congregation. Jewish congregations in Israel, Gentile congregations around the Mediterranean world. We don't have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. 
You don't have a black church and a white church or Asian church and Caucasian church. There's one church made up of all races of people who've been blood-bought, who've come to Christ. We're a unified body worldwide, the church triumphant, the church of Jesus Christ. So he was trying to help them grasp the bond that they had together, these different ethnic groups. So beginning in chapter 8, there's a definite shift in subject matter by the phrase now or moreover, he says. And with the Spirit's guidance, Paul describes for the Corinthians what grace-giving looks like. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but there's many terms used here in chapters 8 and 9 about giving, offering, etc. But grace giving is the term that's used most prolifically. And that's what I personally believe the Bible teaches is grace giving. The Old Testament, we all understand, taught the tithe. The tithe was more than 10% as we all understand, because they had a theocracy. It was their worship, and it was also their government. So they gave closer to 30% to cover both their worship and their government. So we understand the tithe is taught in the Old Testament. That's undisputed and under the law. But I believe the New Testament teaches grace giving, and we're much better off. I would much rather be a New Testament believer than an Old Testament saint. The privilege is are much, much greater for us as New Testament Christians. It would probably make sense then that we would only be more gracious in our giving. But let's get into the text and see what the Bible says here. By the way, how a person uses their money is usually a pretty accurate barometer uh, of their spirituality. How they use their money is a pretty accurate barometer of their true spiritual condition. Money, as we understand, I think everybody understands, is morally neutral. It's morally neutral, just like we could say the internet is morally neutral or car is morally neutral. Both of them can be used for evil purposes. Money is morally neutral, but money, people can use it for either righteous means or they can use it for evil means. We get that. So we want to use our money to glorify God. Money is used in earning, saving, giving, and and planning. The Bible teaches all of that, how money is used. So we earn it, we save it, we use it for future planning and, and in giving. So Paul is dealing with that very topic here. Let's examine Paul's description of grace giving. It applies to all of us. Whether we're a young person that almost has no income or we're in the prime of life and maybe at the maximum uh, earning potential that we'll ever have or we're retired and we're living on a fixed income, the principles here apply to all of us. Paul examines grace giving under four headings. I've put them together. And the first one is in verses 1 and 2. We're talking about a description of grace giving. Verses 1 and 2, grace giving means giving generously. Let's reread those verses. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of of their liberality. 
So Paul's describing that grace-giving means giving generously. Paul's using the Macedonian churches. Remember, Macedonia is northern Greece, Acacia, southern Greece, where Corinth was. And he's challenging the Corinthian Christians to examine how the Macedonian Christians, which was Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, those are the northern churches that we read about, the Macedonian Christians. So Paul is using the Macedonian churches as an example to the church at Corinth. And he talks about the condition of the Macedonian churches. They had experienced severe hardship. They've been ravaged by war under the Roman legions. Their wealth had been mined out and carted off. And they were destitute. They were very poor. But in spite of their poverty, he says they were amazingly generous. Amazingly generous. Look in verse 2. He says, through their great trial of afflictions. That phrase is translated in some translations, rock bottom destitution. I don't think it described anybody in this auditorium today. Rock bottom destitution. That's, that describes the the Macedonian Christians, rock bottom destitution, but their circumstances did not hinder them from giving. By the way, most of us feel hindered in giving by our circumstances. We use our circumstances as an excuse for not giving. Well, if I made more money or if I didn't have such big bills piling up, their circumstances did not hinder them from giving. Look at, there's a formula that Paul gives here that makes you scratch your head. They gave liberally and joyfully. Here's the formula, noted in verse 2. Great affliction and deep poverty plus grace equals abundant joy and abounding liberality. There it is right on the screen. That's what Paul says in verse 2. Great affliction and deep poverty, and then you add grace to it. The grace of God is added to that. That equals abundant joy and abounding liberality. Now, that's not a logical formula. That's not something that we would sketch out on a piece of paper, and this is how I plan to give my money. Nobody would plan it that way, but he points it out. This is, this is characteristic of the churches of Macedonia. They gave generously. They understood grace giving. When you experience the grace of God in your life, you will not use circumstances as, as an excuse for not giving. You may not be able to give as much as you could when you were in better circumstances, but you don't use circumstances as an excuse for not giving. These believers were not rich in material possessions, but they were rich in liberality of heart. They they were very generous in heart. They didn't have much in hand, but they had much in their heart and they gave. So grace giving means giving generously, verses 1 and 2. Second, look at verses 3 and 4. Grace giving means giving enthusiastically. You've heard me say... The Bible talks about giving hilariously, because that's the Greek word. We don't pass the hat anymore. We don't pass the offering bag. But literally, if we did, you could almost hear people saying, Woohoo! Ha, 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 I love this part of the service. 
That's giving generously and hilariously the word that the Bible uses. So they give enthusiastically. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. For I bear you witness, Paul says, I'm telling you their story. I'm, I'm sharing with you their testimony. I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability? And beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us. We all know what that means, begging us, beseeching us, asking us. They were asking us with much urgency, with fervency, that we would receive the gift and allow them to partake or the fellowship of ministering to the saints back in Jerusalem. They wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be partakers. The word communion comes to mind. They wanted to be uh, a part of the fellowship of helping the saints across the Mediterranean world, much like we saw this morning, helping the saints in Myanmar or some other place that is being persecuted. That's why we do things like Operation Christmas Child. That's why we took up an offering for Myanmar. That's why we do things like that, because we're so prosperous here in America. We want to remember that those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul points that out about the Macedonian church. The Macedonian churches didn't need any prompting or reminding, as did the church at Corinth. Paul was prompting and reminding the church of Corinth that they promised to give, but they hadn't done that. Their giving, he says of the Macedonian churches, was beyond what could be reasonably expected from such a poor congregation. Matter of fact, it is very possible from what I read from the commentators that Paul was so aware of their deep poverty in Macedonia that he didn't even... uh, asked them to contribute to the poor saints in Jerusalem. They found out about it, and they begged him to allow them to participate in the offering. You get that? He, he recognized their condition. He thought, well, I can't ask them. They're barely eking out a survival mode. But they came to Paul and asked to participate. Maybe they didn't give a large amount, but they asked to participate because they wanted the fellowship. They wanted to be in communion with the saints that were suffering back in Judea. So they were more than willing to share in the collection. In fact, verse 4 says they begged to be included. How often do Christians beg the pastor to take up an offering? I've been a pastor for a long time. That doesn't happen. <laughs> now, truthfully, when we used to take an offering and pass the hat, every once, we used to do it at the end of the service. We've done it at the beginning of the service. We never did it in the middle of the service or the sermon. But we've done it in all different kinds of places, okay? Now we don't even do that. But once in a while, at the end of the service, when we used to pass the, the offering plate, I would forget. You know, we'd have an announcement, show some slides, or, you know, have a testimony or something, and I would forget. And the ushers would be back there with the offering bag doing this. <laughs> and then I'd say, oh, yeah, 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 we've got to take the offering. So the only ones that really ever begged to take the offering are the guys that, that handle the money, okay? But really, these folks were asking that they could participate in the offering. Their giving was self-motivated because they were in Christ. It was spontaneous because they heard of the great need in Judea. You see, grace, 
We're talking about grace giving. That's the word he uses. Grace not only frees us from our sin, it frees us from ourselves. You've heard me say, I, I, I can't, I, I have a list actually uh, of how many funerals I've done in the last 35, 40 years. Uh, but people come into this world with their fist clenched as babies coming out of their mother's womb. And when they go to the funeral home, the, the funeral director has to unwind their hand because we leave the world this way. And giving is the only thing that really opens up our hands. We're a clenched fist people, naturally. But we understand grace it frees us from ourselves. It frees us from our want. It frees us from our narcissistic perspective on life. And we realize there's a lot of needs out there, and I, can, I can't meet all of them, but I can help meet some of them. So your giving should not be the result of cold calculation, but of warm-hearted jubilation. I say that again. Your giving should not be cold calculation but warm-hearted jubilation i know people that are so exact when handling their paycheck or bonus or any other thing they figure out to the dime to the penny what they what they believe their tithe is and that's what they write their check on in my opinion that's cold calculation not warm-hearted jubilation. Not God, I see a need, I want to help meet it, and, and I wish I could give more, but this is what I believe you're prompting me to give. That's warm-hearted jubilation. I'm glad I can participate in this. Not figuring out the exact penny or dime. Uh, I, I'll give to God what I owe him and nothing more. This cold-hearted, calculating approach to giving. Grace giving means giving generously, verses 1 and 2. Grace giving means giving enthusiastically. They were excited to give. They were jubilant. They begged to give. Number three, grace giving means giving sacrificially, verses 5 through 9. Let's reread those verses. And they gave, not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves, he says, to the Lord and then to us their leadership, their pastors, and then to us by the will of God. He said, that's the will of God. So we urge Titus. Remember, Titus was running the letters, Paul's severe or stern letter, and then he brought the response back that they had repented. We studied that in the last two chapters. So we, we urge Titus that he had be, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace within you as well. He had taught them about giving. Paul had taught them about giving, but he wanted to see their giving brought to fruition. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, and remember the Corinthian church had this abundance of spiritual gifts. They had all these gifts. Matter of fact, they were fighting over which gifts were the most important, which gifts were the most prominent. Tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, etc. And they were all pushing forward their gifts. He says, you have all these gifts. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, all these gifts, and in all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace. Talking about giving. See that you abound not just in the gifts of the Spirit, but in the graces of the Spirit. This grace of giving. 
I speak not by commandment. In other words, Paul says, I'm not giving you an authoritative command. I don't speak by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. So he uses Jesus in verse 9 as a capstone illustration of ultimate sacrificial giving. So verses 5 through 9, grace giving means giving sacrificially. What does he say in the first verse? The supreme act of worship is not giving our money. The supreme act of worship is not giving our money. It's not attending church. It's not singing the hymns that Pastor Brian leads us in, but it's giving of ourselves to the Lord. That's what he says in verse 5. It's giving ourselves. That's the supreme act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may present yourselves holy and acceptable unto God. So the supreme act of worship, the thing that precedes giving is, Lord, here am I. I give myself to you, and if I give myself to you, I give everything that I own to you. It's all yours. That's the supreme act of worship. If we give ourselves to God... If we give our souls to God, our life to God, we have little trouble giving our substance to God. The biggest problem is most people haven't given themselves to God, and so they don't want to give their substance to God. And if we give ourselves to God, we'll give ourselves to others, and that's exactly what he was appealing them to do. Ministering to one another, ministering to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Literally, we could say, and the Bible teaches it, we know it, it is impossible to love God and ignore your neighbor's needs. It's impossible to love God and ignore your neighbor's needs. James talks about, don't say to your neighbor who's destitute, oh yeah, be warmed and filled, see you buddy. Hope God meets your needs. He says, that's not a Christian heart at all. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He gave himself for our salvation. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 uses those various words. He gave himself for us, our sins. Should we not give ourselves back to him after he purchased our salvation? He redeemed us from hell. He redeemed us from the penalty of our sin. He gave us a fullness of life here, the Holy Spirit abiding within us to direct us and to guide us, to give us insight into the Word of God, to provide for all of our needs. After he's done all of this for us, should we not willingly give ourselves back to God? That's Paul's point. So Jesus is the preeminent example for believers to follow, whether it be in their service or, in, as he's talking about here, in their sacrifice. The Corinthians, he says, were enriched with all kinds of spiritual blessing. Matter of fact, turn back with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He starts off his epistle, his first epistle to the Corinthians that we have, talking about that very thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, I thank my God always concerning you. 
for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. And he goes on, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to talk about the gift list. And I've already mentioned that they gloried in their gifts. They actually debated over which gifts were the best and most important in the church. So they had been blessed in all ways. They were really a rich church in contrast to the Macedonian churches, which were poor churches. But they were wrapped up in the gifts of the Spirit. They had neglected this grace of the Spirit. So I remind you, as Paul is saying here, using our gifts, every believer has a spiritual gift or more than one. Using our gifts is not a substitute for giving. We can't say, well, I teach Sunday school, so I don't have to give because I'm employing my gift. Or I work on the grounds or buildings, and, and so I'm using my gift so I don't have to give. Many years ago, someone built me this pulpit and that communion table. And as we were talking, he said, you know, Pastor, I don't give. I don't give at all. It was true. He said, because I built that pulpit, and he's no longer in the church. Not because I kicked him out or anything, but he's no longer in the church. But he said, I use my carpentry gifts, so I don't give. I tried to explain to him, well, we're very grateful for your carpentry gifts, and we're still using them here today, but that's not a substitute for giving. All of us are commanded to give, just like all of us are commanded to witness. All of us are commanded to worship. All of us are commanded to pray. It's not, it's not an either or. Paul is challenging them. It's not a substitute. Using your gift is not a substitute for giving. And Paul makes it clear he's not ordering them to give. I'm, I'm glad this is here in this passage. Look at verse 8. I speak not by commandment. I'm not ordering you to give. But he was contrasting their attitude with the spirit of the Macedonians. He's contrasting the Macedonians who were so poor but so generous and the Corinthians who were so rich but so miserly. He's holding up the Macedonians as a challenging example to them. You know, if that's ever applicable, it's applicable to the Christians in America. My goodness, how rich we are. The poorest person in our church is richest than the wealthiest king in the Middle Ages. I mean, they walked on a stone floor and tried to heat the palace with a fireplace where all the heat was going up. They didn't have fresh vegetables in the wintertime. They had to go outside and use a pot. I mean, they didn't have electricity. They had a poor diet. Everything was miserable. They didn't live very long. They had no treatment for diseases. They couldn't fix their teeth. They pulled them. You know, the poorest of us are better off than the richest down through history here in America. So it's certainly applicable as he compares the Macedonian Christians and their giving and their liberality to the Corinthian Christians and their stinginess. I don't know, maybe we fall somewhere in between. I sure don't want to be identified the way he's challenging the Corinthian Christians, I'll tell you that. The Corinthians said they love God and they love Paul. Remember, Titus brought that greetings back from them. And he says that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich for your sakes. He became poor. He says in verse 8, now prove the sincerity of your love. Prove it to me. 
They said they love God, they love Paul. Now he says, you prove it to me. The test of real love is not words. It's not even feelings. The test of true love is actions. We all know that. We can say we love people. We can say we love our spouse. We can say we love our children. But it's really proven in our actions. It's good to say it. I'm all for that. We know that. But it's really proven. Same way with God. We can say we love God. We can beat our chest and say, oh, Lord, I love you. I can sing at the top of my voice. But it's proven in our actions. And it's not how high you jump or how high you can sing or how loud you sing. It's how you walk when you land, when you come down. That's what proves our love. So the Macedonians were following the example of our Lord. That's what he says in verse 9. I've used verse 9 as a Christmas message last year or the year before. Verse 9 is a great Christmas text, believe it or not. But he's using the Macedonian Christians and comparing them to the example of our Lord. Jesus was rich in possessions, and he was rich in positions especially. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Yet despite all those riches, the Bible says he became poor, literally. All he ever owned was the garments that he wore on his back. He literally became poor, speaking of his incarnation, of course. He left heaven's throne to become a lowly servant. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might have the righteousness of God, that we might be joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 17. So all the riches, joint heirs, mean we inherit everything that is there through Christ. We become joint heirs. All the riches of heaven, all the riches that are Christ won, he, he is now bestowing upon his servant. So here we were in poverty, and now he makes us rich. And Jesus, who was rich, became poor that we might become rich. So there's a supreme example he holds up to the Corinthian. says, just like Jesus... That should be our heart attitude. Jesus gave sacrificially. The Macedonians gave sacrificially. And the challenge for us in grace giving is to find out what is really sacrificial giving. What is really sacrificial giving? We could march Mark Zuckerberger Facebook, or now it's what? Meta? I think they changed the name here last week or so. We can march Mark Zuckerberger, Bill Gates, one time $90 billion, the Oracle of Omaha, Elon Musk, Tesla, and all of that. We could take the richest people, and you know, they have. They have given literally billions of dollars. Matter of fact, Elon Musk said recently, I will give $6 billion to deal with the poverty program in the world. If you can prove it, it'll make a difference. $6 billion. They can drop $6 billion or $10 billion. And you know what? That's more than all of us will ever make in our lifetime put together times whatever number. But that's not really sacrificial giving, folks. We all know that. Because they're worth so much. It's not what you give, it's what you got when you, after you give, that's left over. Now, I'm not advocating. I'm not advocating giving all your money away. But we have to determine as grace givers what is really sacrificial giving. What does God want me to give? Look at the fourth and final thing, verses 10 through 12. 
Grace giving means giving willingly. Grace giving means giving willingly. Let's read those verses again as well. And in this I give advice. So here's inspired advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. So it's, it's to your account. It's to your advantage if you follow through, Paul says. You made the promise. You desire to give, but you haven't done it. And you were desiring to do a year ago. But now you also must complete the doing of it, the giving of it. That as there was a readiness and a desire, so there also might be a completion of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, that's accepted of God. God's pleased with that according to what one has and not according to what does not, one does not have. Let's unpack those verses. Paul is saying there's a big difference between promise and performance. They had promised to give when Paul was with them but they hadn't performed. There's a big difference between promise and performance. In other words, talk is cheap. That's what Paul's saying in the modern vernacular, your talk is cheap. Many people have difficulty finishing what they start. That's what the problem was right here. They had promised to give, they had started to give, and Paul said in 1 Corinthians, make sure that you take up your offering on the first day of the week so when I come I don't have to receive the offering. You set it aside. When you gather together on the first day of the week, Sunday, you do your giving then. So you're not giving it when I'm there. Many people have difficulty finishing what they start. Whether that be a personal Bible study. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, this year I'm going to do some personal Bible study. I'm going to read through the Bible. I'm going to study the Bible. Or whether that be an exercise program. This year I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to get fit. Or it's changing their diet. I've got to eat cleaner. I'm, I'm going to change my diet. A lot of people make promises or they start, but they don't finish. Why? Because finishing requires two things. It requires discipline and it requires devotion to the task. Personal discipline and devotion to the commitment. And that's what Paul is saying here. You made a promise, but you didn't follow through. Many times Christians make promises to give, to study, to become a different kind of person, but they don't follow through. They don't take it to the end. Good intentions, only good intentions when they're followed to completion. So the Corinthians had boasted, literally, a year earlier that they wanted to share in this offering. Look at verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun... So he would also complete this grace in you as well. Verse 10, and in this I give advice, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago. They promised to do it a year ago. Hmm. Paul's emphasis here is on willingness. So let me park there for just a moment. Willingness. Grace giving comes out of a willing heart. Is that your heart attitude? Now, truthfully, we've all sat through heart-wrenching stories and videos that displayed for us tremendous needs. Matter of fact, I was moved by the Operation Christmas Child video this morning. Here's this guy ministering to handicapped children in Mongolia. We've all sat through heart-wrenching stories and videos about tremendous needs. 
We've all been forced to laugh at old jokes that are supposed to make us loosen up and get easier at parting with our money. We've all done that. I've done that. We've all maybe even sat through presentations where we've been scolded and shamed and almost felt threatened if we didn't give, that the hammer was going to come down on us. We've all sat through those, but let me tell you, none of those are biblical methods. They're not biblical methods. Threatening people, scolding people, shaming people, moving people emotionally. Now, certainly the preached word moves us emotionally. Seeing needs move us emotionally. Those aren't necessarily wrong, but if that's the only time that you give, you got to do something like that to get people to give, then they're not giving out of a willing spirit as he's talking about here in verses 10 through 12. Those are not necessarily biblical methods, and it's not true, genuine grace giving. Grace giving is understanding what God has done for me, what he has given to me, and I want to give some of that back to the program of God to meet needs. That's grace giving. So we must not be confusing. Willing and doing is what Paul is saying. You were willing, but you've never done the doing. Because they they must go together. Look at the last part of verse 12, and we're done here. There must be a willing mind, and then it's accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So he's saying, All God wants you to do is to give out of what you have. He doesn't expect you to give out what you don't have. You know, I've heard in Faith Promise Giving that you you write a number down on a sheet of paper and say, God, you give me the money and I'll give it to you. I don't believe that's biblical. I've had people, members of this church, not anymore. They've moved away. Okay. Talk about all these past members. Okay. Who said to me, pastor, I play the lottery every week. I buy five tickets. I've been doing it for years. And I want you to know when I win the lottery, I'm going to give the church a million dollars. I'd take the million dollars and use it for the glory of God. But that's not, that's the opposite of what he's saying here. We don't promise God that we'll give what we don't have, we look at what we have and say, God, I'll give you out of what I have. That's what grace giving is. Not God, if you make me rich, I'll give. Or if you only win the lottery, I'll give you a percentage of it. No, God just wants us to look over our finances, look over our earnings and say, God, this is what I believe you want me to give. Grace giving, willingly, sacrificially generously. That's what grace giving is. Not God bless me what I don't have and I'll give some of that back to you. No, it's what I do have. I think it would be accurate to say from the scriptures that God sees not the portion we give, but the proportion that we give. Not the portion we give. Because some people here have very little to give, and yet they give a large portion. Others have a lot to give, and maybe they give a much smaller portion. 
God doesn't look at the portion. Certainly he knows it, but he looks at the proportion that we give. If we want to give more, but can't, God notes that. If we can give more, but we don't, God notes that. So, grace giving. If we understand the scriptures here, we are going to give willingly. I'm not here to coerce you, to bend your arm, to put you on a guilt trip about your giving. That's between you and God. We are to give willingly. The Bible says we are to give sacrificially, holding up Jesus Christ as the supreme example, and the Macedonians as well as a secondary example. Willingly, sacrificially, enthusiastically. They begged the gift. They wanted to participate. They didn't want to miss out on the blessing of giving what little they had to reap eternal reward. You've heard me say, I think the Bible is clear. The only two things we'll see on the other side of this life and in glory are the people that we've influenced to come to Christ and the money we've given to help advance the work of God. The only two things we'll see on the other side. People brought to Christ, money given to advance the cause of Christ. So I want to give enthusiastically, generously, sacrificially. God has to show me what that is. God has to show you as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we're not under the law so much better than being an Old Testament saint. Thank you that we are in this period, history of the church age and under grace, and that you give us great blessings in this era, in this dispensation. And Lord, the longer we live the Christian life, the more we understand them and we're grateful for them. And we understand that you've allowed us to be born in the most prosperous country in the history of the world and to be Christians here. We want to reflect that in everything that we do and, of course, especially even in our giving. So help us to be grace givers, not cold-hearted givers, not law givers, but grace givers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.